Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we share the story of Alberta Jones from Louisville, Kentucky, a civil rights pioneer and Louisville's first Black female prosecutor who was brutally murdered in August 1965. Her murder remains unsolved. This is Alberta's story. You might not know who Alberta Jones is. She's not listed in our history books. There's no fancy biopic starring an A-list Black actress. She's not included in our Black History Month photo montages, but Alberta Jones was an icon. And in a time where being Black and being a woman left you with very few options, Alberta Jones overcame every obstacle that was in front of her. Alberta Jones was born in 1930 in Louisville, Kentucky. She was the youngest of three children, and there's not a lot of information out there about her childhood, But what we do know is that she attended Louisville Central High School, uh, which was called Louisville Colored High School during the years Alberta attended. And Alberta was academically gifted. She graduated high school with honors. And then she went on to attend Louisville Municipal College for Negroes. And in 1951, when the Louisville Municipal College for Negroes merged with the University of Louisville, as part of efforts to desegregate all white colleges and universities, she was among the first Black students to attend the University of Louisville. Alberta then went on to graduate third in her class in 1959. So it's important to remember the time period in which Alberta is living in. She was living in a time where the civil rights movement was just beginning and Black people were literally fighting for their lives. Alberta knew that she needed to be a part of the solution, so she decided that she was going to be a lawyer. Alberta originally attended the University of Louisville Law School, but after only a year, she transferred to Howard University. Now, Howard University was the law school that Thurgood Marshall had attended, so it was easy to see why a woman like Alberta would want to go to Howard Law School. Alberta excelled while she was at Howard, and she graduated fourth in her class. After graduating from Howard, Alberta returned to her hometown in Louisville and became the first Black woman to pass the bar in the state of Kentucky. 
Shortly after being admitted to the Kentucky bar in 1959, Alberta was quoted by the Courier-Journal, a local newspaper, as saying, quote, if I had known how much was depending on me, I would have studied harder and I would have worn something different. It's so telling that someone that had accomplished so much didn't seem to see the big deal in what she had accomplished and that she was like pursuing. Like she didn't seem to see how big of a deal this was. And that says a lot about the type of person that Alberta was. So after passing the bar, she opened up her own law firm in downtown Louisville. And like that is really significant because at this time, there were cities in this country where Black people weren't even allowed to go downtown. They weren't even allowed to shop downtown, let alone own a business or a law firm. So the fact that, you know, she was able to open a law firm in downtown Louisville is, is significant. Um, you know, and one of Alberta's first clients is a young boxer by the name of Cassius Clay, who needed an attorney to help him negotiate the very first professional boxing contract that he had in 1960. And of course, we all know that Cassius Clay becomes uh, Muhammad Ali. And she actually knew Muhammad Ali because at that time, he was her neighbor. (laughs) It was just like a coincidence that the greatest fighter of all time was her neighbor. Um, But... Alberta was an activist, and she was a member of the NAACP. And so that was really where her passions were. And so she uh, ended up using her knowledge to help Black people register to vote. And her passion really was increasing the African-American participation in the political process. Um, As a result of that passion, she started an organization called Independent Voters Association, um, and that association helped to register over 6,000 Black people to vote. And in 1961, her efforts brought out large numbers of Black voters, and they helped to oust the city's mayor and aldermen who had been refusing to enact a law against discriminating against Black people. And so as a result of this election, um, the city ended up creating what is called a public accommodation ordinance, and it ended up being the first in the state. And a public accommodation ordinance basically is a law that says that people cannot discriminate against uh, people in terms of goods and services uh, because of the color of their skin. So, you know, business couldn't say, I'm not going to serve you because you're black. You can't, you know, you can't purchase this because you're black. And so that's a really significant, um, you know, thing to have happened during that time and in the state of Kentucky. So as you can see, Alberta was really a force to be reckoned with. Like, she was three years out of law school at this time. She had already successfully negotiated the first professional boxing contract for the man who would become one of the greatest boxers in history, Muhammad Ali. She has now organized a grassroots campaign to oust the sitting mayor of Louisville and the city's aldermen, which resulted in them enacting an ordinance that says Black people can no longer be discriminated against and deny access to goods and services. And then, of course, she participated also in the March on Washington. So it's like, seriously, like, she's done all of this in this really short period of time. And through all of this, you know, Alberta is a very humble person who really just wants to help other people. She was once quoted as saying, you know, a lot of people told me, you've got two strikes against you. You're a woman and you're a Negro. But she said, yeah, I've got one strike left, and I've seen people get home runs when all they've got is one strike. 
And that's the kind of woman Alberta was. With two strikes against her, she was hitting home runs. Alberta had made quite a name for herself in Louisville, and her political influence had changed the city. So in 1964, the city of Louisville appointed Alberta to city attorney. She would only serve in that position for a short period of time before she was appointed as the prosecutor for the Domestic Relations Court. She was the first woman of any race to hold either position. But as the first Black and female prosecutor in Louisville, Alberta ironically prosecutes cases against mostly white male defendants. But being the first woman prosecutor would be the last position Alberta would hold. Six months after making history, Alberta's body was found floating in the Ohio River. In 1965, Alberta is living with her sister and her mom. She wasn't married and she didn't have any children. I mean, she was really ahead of her time, even in her personal life. While most women Alberta's age in 1965 were wives with children, Alberta was career-focused, and she didn't appear to feel pressured to be anything else. She was helping people. She was making a difference, and that seemed to really be where Alberta's focus was. But August 4th, 1965, was the last night of Alberta's life. Alberta was spending that evening at home with her sister, Flora Shanklin. And Flora recalls that that evening, her sister received a phone call from a friend asking Alberta to come over. Now, the Courier-Journal in 1965 says that Flora said that Alberta received the phone call around 11.30 p.m. But in 2018, when Flora gave an interview with a local ABC news station, WHAS 11, she said that the phone call was at 10 p.m. Now, the difference could just be simply the fact that this happened 53 years ago at the time and Flora was in her 80s in 2018. But the difference of an hour and a half, to me, kind of raises red flags because that's a big difference in time. Now, the time the phone call was received is not the only part of the case that changes when Flora is interviewed back in 2018. The actual events of the night before Alberta's death are vastly different between what Flora says in 2018 and what is reported in 1965. So on August 6, 1965, the Courier-Journal reports that Flora tells the police that Alberta received a phone call from who they described as a close friend named Gladys Wyckoff around 11.30 p.m. Now, the police tell the Courier-Journal that Gladys tells them that she called Alberta that night to ask her to come to her house so that she could fit her for a wig that Alberta had ordered from her earlier. Now, that's a little weird that your you know, friend would be coming over to, or you would, your friend would be calling you to come over at 11.30 at night to try on a wig. Like, I wear wigs, and if my friend called me at 11.30, I'd be like, why can't we do this tomorrow? So that automatically is a little weird, but this is the story that Gladys tells the police. Um, now, she says that she um, asked her to meet her at her um, at her home. But the article says that Gladys asks her to meet her at her home and then says that Alberta comes to her beauty salon. So I'm not sure if it's like a beauty salon in her home or if this is just like a, a, a typo in the article or, you know, I, I'm not really sure. Um, but 
Alberta goes to meet Gladys, and this is according to Gladys's story, um, at Gladys's home or beauty salon, whichever. And then according to Gladys, Alberta tries on the wig and then they drive to a restaurant to get something to eat. And then after they get something to eat, they return to Gladys's home where they then talk for a little while. And then according to Gladys, Alberta left wearing the wig around 1.30 a.m. So what parts of that story differ from what Flora says in her interview in 2018? Well, pretty much all of it, except for the fact that Alberta received a phone call that night. So in 2018, Flora tells that local news station that Alberta received a phone call from a friend around 10 p.m. and that this friend, who Flora doesn't name in this 2018 interview, um, says that the friend was having legal trouble and that the friend needed Alberta's help. And then according to Florida, Flora, Alberta says that she tells her friend that, you know, because of how late it was, like, it's really nothing that she can do at this time. And then the friend allegedly says to Alberta, quote, well, since you've got this new position, you've gotten so uppity that you don't have any time for your friends. And the position that the friend, of course, was talking about is her new position as the prosecutor. And Flora says that at this time, Alberta was really conscious about the way her friends perceived her and her success. And she never really wanted them to think that she was better than them because, you know, of her education or or her job. And, you know, so feeling guilty, Alberta says, okay, I'm, I'm coming. So... When Flora says, when Flora left Alberta, she says that Alberta was sitting on the couch reading a magazine about uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination. And she says their last conversation would be almost like a foreshadowing of what would happen hours later. Because Flora says that the last thing her sister said to her was, quote, I hope I don't get assassinated. To which Flora regrettably replied, well, don't worry about that. You're not the president of the United States. So, as you can see, the differences in the story about why Alberta left her home that night are stark. The story that Gladys tells police seems like just two girlfriends hanging out. Alberta went to pick up a wig, grab something to eat, and then she left. But Flora's story makes it seem like Alberta was reluctant when she left her home that night. However, as different as these two stories were, I soon learned that these two versions are not the only stories that are told about what happened to Alberta before she left her home that night in the decades that follow. On the morning of August 5th, 1965, a group of teenage boys saw a body floating about 15 feet from the shore of the Ohio River. The police recovered the body but were unable to immediately identify who the victim was. There was no identification found on or near the victim. Around 1.30 p.m. that day, after not returning home the night before, Sadie Jones, Alberta's mom, called Louisville Crime Prevention Bureau to report that her daughter had not returned home. And we're not exactly sure why she would call the Louisville Crime Prevention Bureau and not the police. I actually tried to look that up, but there was no information about that. I'm not sure uh, if there was a big difference or if she knew to call them instead of calling the police. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not exactly clear. Alberta was a prosecutor, and so it's quite possible that maybe she knew to call them and not just the police. But 
Alberta's body was identified later that day by Daryl Owens, and he was a young lawyer who at the time shared an office with Alberta. And it's also not clear why Daryl Owens was the one who to identify Alberta's body. He wasn't a family member, and I really couldn't find any information about how close of a relationship they had. But it was 1965. So, you know, although Alberta did have a brother, I believe he was living out of state at that time. And so maybe Daryl being a man was the reason that the family asked him to go identify the body. Um, Daryl would later go on to describe that as being the worst day of his life. When Alberta was found, she was fully clothed. However, she was missing her shoes. And she did not have the wig on that she was alleged to have been wearing when her girlfriend, Gladys, said she last saw her. For reasons that are unknown, even though Alberta was only 32, she wore dentures, both top and bottom, and they were also missing. The police note that Alberta wasn't wearing any jewelry. However, her sister Flora said that she never wore any jewelry, not even a wristwatch. But I found that to be a little bit strange because in a lot of the photos that I saw of Alberta, she was at least wearing a necklace. And, you know, even in the photo that I include for this story, she's wearing a necklace. So, you know, it was weird for her sister to say that she never wore jewelry. Maybe she wasn't wearing jewelry that day. Maybe she didn't wear jewelry often. But to say, like, she never wore jewelry wasn't exactly, didn't seem exactly to be true because, you know, there's pictures of her wearing at least a necklace. Um, But Alberta's car also wasn't found. So on August 6th, an article in the Courier-Journal says that police think that at first the death appears that it could have just been accidental, even though Alberta's body had two cuts on the forehead when it was found. And the coroner seemed to agree and determined almost immediately that Alberta had died from drowning. The course of the investigation would quickly shift, however, when a bloodstained car was discovered later that night, 10 blocks away from the riverbank where Alberta's body was discovered floating. The car is found after a neighbor calls police that night that her body was found to report that a car had been parked on his block for a couple of days, and he thought that it was either abandoned or stolen. The car was quickly determined to be a rental car that Alberta was driving. On August 7th, it was reported that Alberta's rental vehicle was found with bloodstains on the rear seat, the floor of the rear seat, and on the back of the front seat. The upper denture plates that were missing from Alberta's mouth were found on the floor of the back seat of the car, and on the rear seat were pieces of brick. After Alberta's bloodstained vehicle are found, police say that on the basis of the discovery of the car, it's likely that Alberta's death was the result of a homicide. In 1965, we have to remember that DNA technology was not being used by police departments like it is now. You know, it was in its infancy, and there was very little known about it. So the most that they could do in terms of evidence was collect fingerprints. So the police do find fingerprints on the steering wheel of the vehicle, and they send those fingerprints along with the pieces of brick and some other matters that they find in the car to the FBI for testing. Police start to gather evidence, including witness statements, almost immediately into the investigation of Alberta's death. And their theory goes from Alberta drowned either from suicide or accidentally to Alberta was murdered and thrown from the bridge. On August 8th, four days after Alberta was murdered, the police released information stating that they had recovered Alberta's missing shoes. 
They say they were found about 10 feet from the exit for the bridge near where Alberta's body was found. The police also say that a person who lived in the West End part of Louisville recalled hearing a woman screaming at around 2.15 a.m. that night before Alberta was found dead. The person stated that they heard the scream and then saw a man dragging a woman into a car. The witness said that there was also another man inside the vehicle. And after an autopsy reveals that Alberta suffered two lacerations to her forehead and that she had abrasions and bruises on other parts of her body, the police start to create a theory of what they believe may have happened to Alberta the night that she was murdered. Police began to theorize that Alberta was attacked that night and that when she stopped at a stoplight, they believe it's possible that someone jumped in her car, even though that wouldn't explain why the witnesses report seeing a woman being drugged into her car. But the police say that they believe that the assailant or assailants hit Alberta until she was unconscious and then threw her into the Ohio River along with her shoes, which they believe they threw from the window of the car as they drove back across the bridge. Now, the theory that the police present seems at the time to be a really solid one. You know, they, within a matter of days, have recovered evidence that is pointing them to at least one direction, and they have fingerprints and eyewitnesses that saw Alberta, possibly. But who killed Alberta and why would be a question the cops would struggle to answer. The possibility that Alberta's death was related to her work was always at the forefront of the investigation. Alberta wasn't exactly well-liked by everyone in Louisville. You know, she worked on behalf of Black people for years before becoming a prosecutor. You know, and the 60s saw the death of many Black leaders in the civil rights movement, including Malcolm X in February of that same year. And as a prosecutor, most of the cases she tried, remember, were against white male defendants. You know, they could have been upset with the outcome of a trial and the fact that a Black woman was a prosecutor in their case. They also believed that it could have simply, you know, been a robbery gone wrong and that Alberta was targeted, you know, maybe possibly for her car. Maybe someone recognized her and thought, you know, as the prosecutor that she had money or jewelry that they could steal, you know, but they didn't have any leads. Then there were the other homicides. Apparently, there had been a string of homicides in Louisville around that time, and Apparently, they were all women, and they were all unsolved. You know, could Alberta's case possibly be connected to this? Was Alberta possibly the victim of a serial killer? Um, You know, but the evidence didn't really support that theory. And the police really started to focus on that eyewitness account. But in the weeks following Alberta's murder, there isn't a lot of information about the investigation or whether or not they had a suspect. And in October 1965, the uh, organization that Alberta had founded, the Independent Voters Association, held a memorial for Alberta. And during that memorial, the Louisville safety director at that time's name was Kenneth Newman, delivered a eulogy. And in that eulogy, he says that he's optimistic that her murder is going to be solved. And he says, in fact, in the last few days, we have discovered some evidence that leads them to believe that they're on the threshold of solving the murder. But in November 1965, the coroner's jury determines that Alberta died by drowning and that based off the evidence, they state that they believe the drowning was caused by an unknown person. 
And if you don't know what a coroner's jury is, it's just a group of people, basically like a regular jury that helps the coroner make a decision about the cause of death about a person. They can range from six people to 20 people. Um, I don't know how common they are, but they were used in this case. The detective that was assigned to Alberta's case tells that jury that the evidence that was sent to the FBI was determined to, quote, have no value and that the police collected over 30 items of evidence from the vehicle, but none of, the, none of it had given them any evidence to identify a suspect. So the detective also tells the jury that they interviewed over 300 people during their investigation. But the police have clearly hit a wall. The police tell the Courier-Journal that, quote, after an exhaustive investigation, they still don't know who killed Alberta, and they don't have any promising leads. They say that even though they haven't given up, they're at a dead end, and that they've pursued every lead they've had so far, and that there's nothing they can do unless they receive new information. But the article itself adds new information, and some information that, again, contradicts the story that's told about that night. The article says that Alberta and Gladys went to a downtown restaurant around 11.45 p.m., which, if you remember, would have been 15 minutes after both Gladys and Flora, Alberta's sister, said that Gladys called Alberta. Now, there's obviously no way that Alberta could have gotten the call from Gladys, driven to Gladys's home, tried on the wig, and then driven to downtown Louisville in 15 minutes. Now, to me, as the armchair detective 60 years later, you know, the fact that the story, is, the timeline keeps changing is, is weird to me. And I don't know if it's connected, but it's just strange that there's so many different versions of this story. But it won't be the last one. This article also sheds more light on the movements of Alberta after she left Gladys's that night. Apparently, Alberta stopped at a store to buy something to drink. Now, shortly after that is when witnesses described hearing a woman scream. And Alberta coming out of a store helps to explain why she may have been out of her car and therefore able to be drugged back in the car. Now, apparently, even though there seems to be no mention of it publicly, in the months after the murder, the police had arrested two suspects that they thought were involved. But the evidence that they present to a grand jury is insufficient, and the grand jury declines to pursue charges. And at the time, the police say that they are unwilling to give up, even though they have no leads and still don't have a clear motive for the murder. And although Alberta's case remained open, three years go by with almost no new information released about the case. But in July 1968, a purse was discovered lodged somewhere in the bridge that police believe Alberta was thrown over. The police tell the Courier-Journal that the purse is in relatively good condition, and then they soon discover that the purse belongs to Alberta. The purse contained Alberta's wallet. Now, the wallet didn't have any cash in it, but it did have a check for $200 made out to herself and her credit cards. The purse also contained a partial dental plate and several keychains. Now, the police at this time once again say that they have, quote, some real good suspects, but then they also say that they're having a difficult time developing a case against them. And so again, Alberta's case begins to go cold. 
13 years after Alberta was murdered, there's been no arrest, and the leads that the police seem to have had when they found her purse have all but completely dried up. So in an effort to bring renewed awareness to Alberta's case 13 years after her death, the Courier-Journal published an article about Alberta's murder. And in this short article, a whole new story about the phone call that led to Alberta leaving her home and meeting her demise arises. So this article says that on the night of Alberta's death, that she called a beautician friend. And we assume that it's still the same friend, Gladys. And says that she called her because she wanted to discuss with her different standards between black and white beauticians. But this is odd. Where did the paper get this version of the story? We always known that in either version, the phone call was made to Alberta. And this article, they're now saying that Alberta was the one to call Gladys. And then, of course, the cause and the reason for the call also changes. That there's nothing to do with the wig and it has nothing to do with the legal matter, but she's really wanting to have kind of just like a discussion with her at 1130 at night about standards between black and white beauticians. That seems really odd. And there's really no explanation and there's no quote about who gives that information to the paper at this time. But that's really it after that. There's really no other information. We don't know who gave the quote. They don't say that the police have any new suspects. And there's no information that's new about the case given in that article. And the case of Alberta Jones, Louisville's first Black prosecutor, goes completely cold. Alberta's case faded in the memories of most people. And after being a cold case for the previous 40 years, in 2010, there are announcements in the case of Alberta Jones. After years of silence and no new information, what the police release about her case is surprising. In May 2010, the Courier-Journal reported that police believe that they have solved the case, but they don't have enough evidence to prosecute the person. They said that unless the man confessed, there was really nothing that they could do. The suspect, who was now living in California, was 17 at the time he was alleged to have committed the murder. Now, he, of course, denied any involvement. But when he took a lie detector test, he failed. So the detectives in the cold case unit determined that the man was the perpetrator of the murder. But because of the age of the case the fact that many of the investigators in the case are now dead and any eyewitness statements would be completely unreliable 45 years later, they knew that they would never be able to win a case against him. And so the man stayed free, accused of murder, but saved by time. The person responsible for Alberta's murder has never faced justice. Her family has still not received answers. And nobody knows, seems to know exactly what happened to Alberta Jones or why. Years would go by. A few articles would appear about Alberta Jones and her legacy sprinkled here and there. A professor at the University of Louisville brought Alberta's story back into the spotlight for a moment back in 2017 when her interest in Alberta Jones, uh, you know, sparked um, her to write a biography for Alberta. You know, the professor's journey was even covered by the New York Times in 2017. And then again, 
her case faded from the headlines, unsolved and unanswered. On March 13, 2020, 55 years after the murder of Alberta Jones, Louisville's first Black female prosecutor, SWAT officers serving a no-knock warrant burst into the home of 26-year-old Breonna Taylor and shot and killed her. The murder of Breonna Taylor by Louisville Police Department would spark a series of protests to demand justice for Breonna Taylor. But it also brought Alberta Jones' case back into the spotlight as well. It was not lost on people that 55 years ago, a Black woman who had been a civil rights pioneer had never gotten the justice that she deserved. And now here we are. Not much has changed. With no answers and no new leads, with witnesses and detectives no longer alive, we may never know what actually happened to Alberta Jones. Thank you for listening to episode three of our three-episode premiere. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram at Black Girl Gone Podcast. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and let us know what you think. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.